Hey everybody, thanks for tuning in again. We have a very special guest with us today, Dr. Jack Schneider. He is an infectious disease fellow uh, here at Indiana University. He's a little bit special in the fact that he did some MedPage training first and now is doing a combined adult and pediatrics infectious disease fellowship. So like Ashley and I, he is a forever learner. So Jack, welcome. Glad to be here, David. Thank you. We are going to deviate a little bit from Ashley and I's normal script of infectious disease and bring in an actual specialist. Um, So Jack is going to be talking to us about parasites today. We realized when we were prepping for this that it's going to be a little bit long-winded, so we're actually going to break this into two sections. So we're going to start things off with protozoa, and then a second section will be focusing on the helminths. We are going to start this off with a little bit of a uh, case slash question. Um, So, Jack, is that okay with you if I do a little question and we'll get going? Um, Yes, I think that's fine. Let's go ahead and start with that. Wonderful. All right. So we have a SGA baby that has uh, serology for toxoplasma that shows IgG and IgM antibodies. Baby's small, 5th percentile, head circumference, 10th percentile. The remainder of the exam is pretty unremarkable. You have a bunch of tests pending, and the parents are concerned that about long-term treatment with sulfa drugs, and they want to know what are the risks if their baby is infected with toxoplasma and they're not treated. So our options here, the most likely adverse outcome would be ADHD, dental deformities, hearing loss, hepatitis, or visual loss. What's the right answer there? Well, David, the right answer um, in this case situation is actually the last one, <laughs> visual loss. Um, so what's interesting about toxoplasma infection with, intrauter- or with intrauterine or congenital toxoplasma infections, um, these patients tend to have acute ocular involvement. They also will have signs of chorioretinitis, which is actually probably the most common long-term consequence. And this can lead to um, unilateral or bilateral vision loss. And to be honest, though, toxoplasmosis can be very difficult. So nearly 70 to 90% of congenitally infected infants, they tend to be asymptomatic. Uh, but this is something that uh, boards test very heavily on vision loss. And I think that that's the take-home point from this question. Also, that option that you provided with hearing loss, I think that's something to bring up, too, because you can see this in toxoplasmosis. Um, but you can also see this in CMV infections. So if you were to get something on the boards that involves you know, a suspected torch infection and they have some of those signs of toxoplasmosis, which we'll go into in a little bit uh, more detail in just a little bit, I would think vision loss. Um, and that's the one thing you need to counsel parents on too and why they need to be monitored closely. If it's a suspected torch infection with hearing loss, um, then I would think automatically of CMB infection. So I think those are really the two take-home points from this question. So yeah, I think there's a lot of high-yield information in here and something um, that the boards will likely test on. And they don't often uh, put anything in the stem about playing with the cat litter box. Of course not. That's too easy, right? <laughs> the boards are not that nice, right? Exactly. I wish everyone would give that right? um, at least history. So unfortunately, no, that's not how it, that's not how it goes. So. All right, um, so protozoa. Yep. So, David, I think the best way, and as you mentioned before and alluded to, is that parasitic infections can be very difficult, especially just because we haven't been exposed to that many. We just don't get enough experience in them. So uh, what has helped me the most, um, at least back in the microbiology lab, and then actually describing this, is actually to break these down into sections, just so that we can kind of at least get the right framework and outline of how these parasites are um, you know, at least grouped and divided. So I think the most important thing is looking at the classification. So I think what's important for 
everybody just to think of is that we divide them into two groups, protozoa and helminths. Protozoa, these are the parasites that, rep or that actually replicate within the body. And what's characteristic about them is they have no eosinophilia. Um, compare that to helminths. Helminths actually are, they actually do not replicate um, within the body. Um, the only exception to this is strongyloides, which we'll talk about later on. Uh, but what's interesting about the helminths, these are your round worms and so forth, um, they generally present with eosinophilia. So I think that's an important part, and that's probably what they'll include within the stem. So if they include the eosinophilia, you can kind of start making that division. Is this more of a helminth infection or a protozoa? And I know your next question is, well, how do we divide, you know, the protozoa and helminths up? And I think that's the first part of our talk today is actually talking about protozoa. Um, and those are divided up into three separate sections. So when you think of protozoa, then think the three that components that make those up. That's sporozoa, which include toxoplasmosis, cryptosporidium, isospora, cyclospora, plasmodium, and babesia. And then there's the amoebic forms of protozoa, and that's where you get into amoeba histolytica. We hear all sorts of cases, or we always see a question about that. I was going right? to say, absolutely <laughs> going to be a board question. And then um, the flagellates, uh, however you want to pronounce it, uh, but these include the very common one that we'll see a lot is giardia. You can also put trichomonas in here um, as well, which will be covered more in the STD section. And then also consider um, your more you know, exotic diseases like trypanosoma and leishmania, um, just to keep those in mind. And I don't want you guys that are listening to this to panic. We will have a whole <laughs> talk about STDs separately, so look forward to that as well. Um, so again, guys, this is um, it is pretty difficult to keep these at least organized, but just think... First two groups, protozoa, helminths, I just think of pH for some reason. That's my way of thinking of it. So protozoa divided into sporozoa, amoebic infections, and flagellates. So hopefully that's not too overwhelming, but I think let's go ahead. Let's take this one step at a time. So let's start with our protozoa. Um, so just a general overview of protozoa. Um, remember, these organisms are single-celled, um, and again, as I said just recently here, they do replicate within the body. Um, so it only, or it takes only a really small number of the organism to cause infection, and I think that's important to know. And the other thing is, is that they do not, do not cause eosinophilia in most cases. So we're going to go through um, at least those different sections that I talked about, a protozoa, the sporozoa, um, amoebic infections, and flagellates. And we'll first start out with the first type, which is sporozoa. And within this group of protozoa um, is Toxoplasma gondii. Um, Toxoplasma gondii, you know that you'll get asked about this at some point. Um, clearly, it's part of the torch infection, but just a little bit of background. Of course, the organism causes toxoplasmosis, obviously. Cats are the definitive host, but as David said before, how many times are they actually going to say that, um, you know, that uh, the patients were involved with cats? It's really Sometimes they will. <laughs> <laughs> or they'll just give you the they'll give you that history so you know it's toxoplasmosis, but then, of course, you have to make the diagnosis and then decide on treatment, which makes it even more difficult, too. So you know boards can never be too easy. But uh, what is interesting about toxoplasma is that in that cats are the definitive host, it's actually um, these oocytes of the toxoplasma that's actually shed in the cat feces that's actually spread, and this is how you know patients are infected. So uh, in order to di diagnose an active infection, you look for an IgM. So you do serologic testing and you look for that IgM, which will be positive. And what's interesting about toxoplasmosis too is that 
it's kind of a hot topic today too as well, but it's because we have an increasing immunocompromised population with the increased transplants we do and so forth. Um, so I think that in, you know, at least from an ID perspective, we start dividing when somebody brings up toxoplasmosis, we divide this into, you know, further groups. We say the toxoplasmosis in the immunocompetent host, toxoplasmosis during pregnancy, toxoplasmosis in the immunocompromised, and there's also the special case called ocular toxoplasmosis. So David, we'll first start with toxoplasmosis in the immunocompetent patient. This is not really much to be worried about um, because in the immunocompetent patient, these they're generally asymptomatic. This can cause a mono-like illness. They can have non-tender lymphadenopathy, also night sweats, and uh, atypical lymphs on a peripheral blood smear. Most of the time, though, it's self-limited. They actually don't need treatment, so important to know. What really is of main interest to us is, and which you'll probably get tested on boards, is toxoplasmosis during pregnancy. Because um, I don't, I don't really have to mention this, but it is true. It's just during pregnancy, this can, this causes the most problems. And I think that what is most important to know is that, and what boards tends to ask, um, not only the ID boards but also peds boards, is in what you know, part of pregnancy are you more likely uh, to get infected or is the fetus more likely to get infected with toxoplasmosis? And the answer to that is the fetus is more likely to have a congenital infection um, if the mother is actually diagnosed or acquires the infection later in pregnancy. So 25% um, are infected if, or fetuses are infected if it's the first trimester, 54% are in the second trimester, and a whopping 65% in the third trimester. So the later on you are in the pregnancy and you get infected, the more likelihood the fetus will be affected. So that's something to just consider too when you start asking the mother just about history, when they were having symptoms and so forth. Sometimes it's hard to determine, but it's an important um, fact to know and it's important for the boards. Uh, for severe congenital infections in the new or in the newborn, I really want to focus on some of those findings that uh, you really uh, should watch out for. And I've got a list here, um, and these are all of them are very important. Sometimes there's overlap with all the other torch infections, but there's a few here that may be a little different that you really want to focus on. The first one is microcephaly. Um, second is hydrocephalus. Third is hepatosplenomegaly. Whenever you have a baby with hepatosplenomegaly, they're small for gestational age. Always start thinking torch infection. Uh, but those are kind of the main three that you generally see in some of the other uh, torch infections. Um, you can also see a maculopapular rash. Uh, what's truly unique, though, uh, to toxoplasmosis is this chorioretinitis. So I want you to take that, you know, at least uh, to heart or at least know it. And also cerebral calcifications. The big question comes up, and this was actually, you know, tested in all of our step exams too, is, well, which ones are more diffuse? Which ones, you know, at least are surrounding the ventricles? And you probably already know the answers to this, but toxoplasmosis, the cerebral calcifications, tend to be more widespread. This is in comparison to CMV. CMV, I always think, of course, as you know, all the other review books tell you, it circumvents, or CMV, if you can kind of think of the word circumvent and divide that up, you'll never forget that CMV infections, the cerebral calcifications, tend to surround or circumvent the ventricles compared to toxoplasmosis, which is more widespread. And that's why I always remember the V in CMB for ventricles. So that's how I remember it personally. But No, I think it's, yeah, it's one of those that just keeps coming up. And for some reason, you gosh, I felt like we first saw it on step one. And now we're even seeing it for, you know, at least peds boards and even for adult boards. I, feel, I still feel like it comes up a lot too. So, um, so those are all of the findings to really watch out for in pregnancy. 
that's your case history, and that's how you're really going to hone in on um, trying to decide which torch infections um, it really is. In the, pregnancy, though, moms are going to have like a flu-like illness, though, right? Likely, they will. Sometimes it's not always that simple, but uh, yes, it can happen. Okay. And then those findings that you were talking about is what you expect to find on the baby's exam. Exactly, on the baby. Sorry if, if I didn't um, at least clarify that. So these are for the severe congenital infections. Um, and then you actually see these findings, of course, within the newborn. Perfect. So, David, on to the next um, point of interest is, uh, or with toxoplasmosis, is always the... Um, the dilemma on how we treat these patients. Uh, clearly, it's a little bit more involved, uh, and we won't go into all those details today. Um, what I think is really important, at least from a pediatric standpoint, is if you do confirm um, a congenital infection of toxoplasmosis. And for these, you will actually, um, we usually use a three-drug regimen. It consists of pyrimethamine, sulfadiazine, and leucoborin. These medications are kept on. Of course, the patients need to be monitored for certain side effects, which I won't go over in detail right now. But most of the time, they will need at least 12 months of therapy, uh, which is probably a testing point too. So if they are diagnosed, they're going to be getting, they're going to be followed by first steps, they're going to be followed by developmental peds very closely, especially for that first year while they're on treatment and beyond. And these are kids that get extra vision screening along the way and hearing absolutely and everything very, paying very close attention to their developmental milestones so these are all testable things as well guys just remember that um, the primary care aspects of these things are important too so following up on vision screening hearing screening developmental milestones are important aspects of torch infections in particular so the last two, I know I mentioned uh, before we got into, um, we talked about toxoplasmosis in the immunocompetent patient and also toxoplasmosis during pregnancy. I wanted just to finish uh, very quickly on toxoplasmosis in the immunocompromised patient and um, also this special uh, situation of ocular toxo. Uh, but first getting to the immunocompromised patient, um, I see a lot of this in the adult patient. We uh, actually at our public hospital, uh, we have quite a large panel of HIV patients and one of our routine screening for these patients um, is to do just an IgM and an IgG to toxoplasmosis. The reason why we do that is just to see if they've been infected or exposed before. Um, clearly, if they haven't been exposed and then you know a year from now after they've started treatment or if they're failing HIV treatment, we, do, we generally see them in our HIV patients. If they come in with headaches, that makes us a little bit more prone to scan their head just to make sure they don't have active lesions. And if that's the case, we would diagnose them. We'd send an IgM. The IgM is positive. We would call them positive for toxoplasmosis with an acute infection. But these are the types of patients that will are more likely to have those primary infections and get CNS lesions. So whenever you think of an immunocompromised patient with the possibility of having toxoplasmosis infection, always think CNS involvement. This can be transplant patients. This can be any of your immunocompromised. We see it a lot, at least for me, in the HIV population that we watch very closely. I feel like we can't talk about toxo and not talk about ring-enhancing lesions <laughs> on CT scan. Yep. So these are those multiple mass lesions that, um, that are pretty characteristic to toxo. Um, and you would treat them really the same exact way as we kind of discussed just for, you know, at least um, for congenital infections too. Um, the pyrimethamine uh, combined with the sulfadiaz or, sul or the sulfadiazine with leucovorin, this is still standard treatment. 
And then ocular toxo. Yeah, ocular toxo, I know we talked about just the treatment with the three-drug regimen, again, for the immunocompromised patients. For ocular toxoplasmosis, we do the same. It's just that um, sometimes we'll need to add steroids. You get them to the ophthalmologist very quickly to say the I least. I can imagine. Right? <laughs> because what's characteristic, which is clearly fair game for the boards, is, is that ocular toxo causes characteristic retinal lesions. And these are what, what are described as yellow-white cotton patches, irregular scarring. And uh, this is in comparison because we also see this in immunocompromised patients with candidal infections. And compared to Toxo, the candidal infections, they produce those white cotton wool patches. And what I think of is with Canada, um, if you've ever seen it grow on a plate before, I think of yeast and just white, dry yeast-like. Um, and that's why I kind of associate that with the white cotton wool patches. But again, as I said before, treat the same. And uh, you would treat with corticosteroids. And, mo- and in most cases, these patients are immunocompromised. All right. That's a whole lot about Toxo, but uh, it's all stuff that you need to know. So if you need to rewind, listen to it again, but we are going to move on. So you guys are getting a double dose of cryptosporidium this month. Um, We talked about it in the HIV section, but for crypto, another key important point for the boards is they'll often talk about the outbreak coming from a water park or a swimming pool. So if you see that in your question stem, you can start to think about crypto. Jack, you had a couple other points you wanted to talk about with crypto? Yeah, this is really for... um it's interesting now because you've probably read about some recent um, outbreaks of cryptosporidium. So we are seeing it. So always always suspect that um, in somebody with chronic diarrhea, especially with the exposures that David spoke about too. What I also want to bring up is the fact that uh, boards tends to like um, to talk about infections and then which immunodeficiencies that they tend to be you know at least associated with. And David already mentioned HIV. The one thing that I just wanted to add was hyper IgM syndrome. They actually they very well may actually include that they have a history of hyper IgM at least syndrome or characteristics of hyper IgM and then have a patient with, you know, chronic watery um, diarrhea with the proper exposures. Also for uh, at least medications, the, this is the tough part because most of the time we can't see this in, Im, or in immunocompromised patients and we use a medication called nidus oxonide and we usually do this for at least three weeks um, just to see if it resolves. Sometimes it can be refractory so they need further treatment but I think that's, you know, that's beyond the scope of this talk but something to just to consider as well. And then the only other thing I'm kind of peering over your shoulder as we're discussing this is the diagnosis by acid fasting. I don't think yeah. that we talked about that. So, And um, you can listen to the correct pronunciation of that drug by Dr. Schneider. Uh, <laughs> Ashley and I did our best with it, so you're welcome. Um, <laughs> I kid you not, these parasites are probably, they're, they were hard for me too. So, you know, you talk to three different ID docs, you'll probably get three different pronunciations. Then better yet, you talk to your, you know, true clinical micro microbiologists and they have their own way of pronouncing these. Um, so don't feel bad butchering some of these pronunciations. So, um, but David, what I wanted to, since you brought up the acid fast, um, you know, at least, uh, characteristic of cryptosporidium that kind of jumps into two other, um, organisms that I think are clinically relevant, uh, that we won't spend much time on, but I kind of group with cryptosporidium and that can be acid fast. And that is, um, isospora. Isospora can be acid fast positive, and uh, it tends to be a you know a larger organism. Tend to see these in the immunocompromised patients, and generally, if you um, isolate that um, in a sample, then you would treat with trimethoprim sulfa. Another one that they may test you on is a cyclospora. This is also can be acid fast. 
Um, and uh, the usual source is actually fruits and vegetables from developing countries. That's key. So when you have a case report and they've had some like, whether it be raspberries, I think was you know one of the outbreaks before too in a, in a developing country, a patient with chronic diarrhea and they see something um, that's acid fast positive on their um, ovum parasite smear, always think cyclospora. And that's definitely fair game. All right. Very good. All right. What else do we need to cover in the sporzoa? Uh, well, David, I'm glad you brought that up because I realized that we've been through toxoplasmosis and then we just talked about crypto, isospora, and cyclospora. So let's all kind of think back. We're still within the um, protozoa classification and we've been talking about the sporozoa. For this part of the sporozoa, that is a it's a it's a beast of a section is malaria. We're not going to go into all the details. We'll have our own separate um, at least talk about malaria. What I think is important to know, though, just for kind of at least some cross training review, is uh, your your pertinent Plasmodium species for malaria. What you need to know is Plasmodium falciparum, and just knowing that it's the worst type of malaria and can cause cerebral malaria. In fact, this summer we've seen multiple cases of malaria with patients that have been here from Nigeria. You've probably even seen them in the or the ER. I, assume, I did right? indeed, <laughs> and admitted one to your service. <laughs> um, these can be uh, what is what is amazing about malaria patients. If you catch them early, they're very treatable. So you see somebody that comes in with almost like stroke-like symptoms, you start treatment that is effective. And within 48 hours, they tend to really do well. Now, having said that, there's always your exceptions if they come in a little bit later and it's more severe and they have high parasitemia. Um, sometimes the outcomes can be um, pretty poor. But at the same time, if you catch it early and have the appropriate treatment, these patients tend to do very well. And like Dr. Schneider said, we will be uh, talking about malaria specifically in its own section just because there's a lot to cover, different treatments, depending on where they are, et cetera. So we won't bore you with that today, but look forward to it in another section. So what are we going to move on to next, Dr. Schneider? Uh, the next section, I think, with at least Plasmodium, um, clearly we're going to talk about that at a different time. Babesia is also another um, sporozoa that is under the actual protozoa, you know, at least classification. Babesia is um, an infection that you generally the the actual um, clinical scenario you or you get is somebody that has that had a splenectomy and that comes in has tick exposure and lives in the northeast. These patients can be very sick, and how you differentiate it at least on a blood smear from you know at least malaria is not only the history, um, whether they've traveled outside the country or traveled to the Northeast, but also that Babesia has some very classic intra-RBC, just tetrad appearing, um, you know, at least characteristics. And this is called that. I remember it. What is it? Remember The the Maltese cross. The Maltese cross, which is the, you know, the big buzzword, at least for Babesia. To be honest, I feel like, you know, going step one, step two, they just always talked about the Maltese cross. To be honest, I think it's too easy for some of the board writers. So now what they'll say is a really sick patient from the Northeast that comes in that had a splenectomy. And once you hear that, go straight to Babesia because these patients can't get sick. They want to trip you up and try to say it's anaplasmosis or it's, um, you know, it's uh, Rocky Mountain spotted fever with rickettsia. But if they say they're, they've had a recent splenectomy or a splenectomy in the past and they come in with hemolytic anemia and very sick and, uh, you know, some possibly they'll even call them ring forms on the peripheral smear. Yeah, they'll start thinking malaria, but if they give you that history, always think Babesia, especially in the Northeast. Mm-hmm. And how are we going to treat Babesia? So Babesia, I don't think they'll really ask about this because it is up for debate. Our go-to drugs are clindamycin and quinine, um, and uh, sometimes you can you at least 
combine clindamycin, even with atovaquone or azithromycin, um, just know that, uh, yes, it needs treatment. Once you start treatment, they generally do quite well. But uh, yeah, like I said, I don't think they'll actually ask that. But really the go-to are either clindamycin and quinine or clindamycin and atovaquone. All right. Well, that was a lot of information. We're moving on into the next section under protozoa, and that's going to be amoebic infections. And luckily for you guys, there's only one that the boards really want us to know. Intamoeba histolytica. Guys, we've all heard this before too, and I'm sure we've already done some questions based on intamoeba histolytica. What you really need to know, the group of people that generally we see this um, in, at least within the U.S., these are those that, that, that are found that are institutionalized, that are immigrants, gay and bisexual men. These are the patients that if they come in with chronic diarrhea and more specifically, bloody diarrhea. So whenever you encounter a patient uh, with these risk factors that are institutionalized or immigrants um, or the previous groups that I described, think intamoeba histolytica. What's also important too, David, which I, um, you know, we were talking about before we even started this, was um, the other big buzzword for intestinal disease, which is these um, amoebic liver abscesses. And uh, have you ever seen amoebic liver abscesses before? Only in a book. Only. <laughs> um, what's interesting about them is that if you aspirate them, they often really don't show amoebas or poly or or. PMNs or really any type of infection. You just kind of match it up at least with the history. What you'll find is, and what you do for diagnosis, is uh, your ova and parasite. Uh, and this varies from institution to institution. Here um, at Indiana, we used to do complete ova and parasites to look at all of these organisms, not only Intamoeba histolytica, but also for Isospora, Cyclospora, and um, Giardia and Cryptosporidium. Now they have an antigen test that can, that can detect Giardia, but it misses all the others, including Intamoeba histolytica. So we specifically have to ask for a more complete ovin parasite, and that's where you actually have the microbiologist take a more in-depth look at uh, the stool sample. So be aware of that because it does vary from lab to lab, and it's very important to get the right test to actually detect some of these stool parasites. What I think also, at least from a treatment standpoint, they always talk about a luminal agent, and so for asymptomatic infections, you know, I, I usually go to promomycin. Um, I know that was difficult for me to say at first, but um, I don't think that's really important for boards, for general peds boards. But just know that, uh, yes, you will see cases like this even on the hospitalist service and on the ID service here, but think of promomycin. Also, if you have liver abscesses um, that are involved, then you start thinking about adding some anaerobic coverage as well, um, and that would be more with metronidazole, not specifically for the anaerobes, but for how metronidazole um, affects these actual uh, par- or the or the parasites themselves. All right, guys, we are to the last section of the protozoa, and that's the flagellates. Um, so we're gonna break up the monotony a little bit of Jack and I chatting and give you guys another question. Make sure you're paying attention. This is pretty classic. So. 18-year-old African-American comes in with weight loss to the clinic. A month ago, he was camping. They ran out of water. They were drinking the mountain stream near the campsite. He was prescribed some clindamycin at his local emergency department uh, for a cut on his arm that he just, that he had. So I think that's probably a red herring that they're throwing in there. Um, but he's now complaining of generalized abdominal pain, two to three semi-formed stools a day, no blood or mucus, no vomiting. Otherwise, he's lost 1.5 kilograms since his last office visit six months ago. I threw in a lot of buzzwords. I'm not even going to give you guys your A, B, C, D, and E. What is this, Dr. Schneider? 
made it way too easy, right, David? I don't think we'll ever get a question this easy, um, especially so straightforward with all the um, appropriate risk factors. But this is characteristic to Giardia lamblia, which, of course, is the most common disease causing parasite in the U.S., it's, uh, it's also one of the most frequently identified diarrheal agents in waterborne-associated um, infections. And um, if you were to pick out some of those, you know, buzzwords, you know, we kept saying characteristic buzzwords in that question stem, which ones can you really pull out, David, that you feel like are so characteristic to Giardia? He was camping. <laughs> yeah. He was drinking mountain stream water. <laughs> I thought maybe they had more frequent bowel movements than that, but non-bloody bowel movements, I think, is another one that plays in there. Um, those are the big things that I pulled out of that question stem. Oh, I know. And those, so the one things that, you know, sometimes I'll throw at you too with these Giardia infections is this terribly smelly diarrhea. You would think diarrhea is just smelly regardless, right? But it has this sulfuric, um, I shouldn't say sulfuric, the belching is usually um, associated with Giardia infections too. So you have the diarrhea and then you belch and they say you have this sulfuric just kind of belch or the sulfuric belching, uh, which is very characteristic. And a lot of patients will mention this too. (laughs) I always do feel a little weird when I'm... So do you find your diarrhea particularly (laughs) foul-smelling? You know, as ID docs, we're okay with asking all those just random questions, and we warn people ahead of time. But, uh, yeah, especially when you have to, you know, ask about flatulence and so forth, too. Um, It's... uh, you know, it's something, though, that is very important to the history, and that's what makes an ID doc an ID doc. They have to ask these, you know, random questions. And I think even for general practitioners who suspect Giardia, these are appropriate questions because parents will usually come out and say, gosh, this is, you know, very characteristic um, or, character- or characteristically rancid. So think Giardia. The other thing that you should also know, too, just, uh, and it's just this is more of just to bring up another heavily tested topic is daycare centers and young, you know, at least children. You have somebody that's out camping, clearly you start thinking of Giardia. But if they're in actually a daycare, then you start thinking Shigella. Um, Shigella, not necessarily associated with the, you know, terribly foul-smelling, even the sulfuric belching, but they have chronic non-watery diarrhea, or I'm sorry, um, chronic non-bloody uh, watery diarrhea. And on top of that too, sometimes on boards, they'll actually um, throw out some seizure-like activity. If that's with a history consistent with Shigella, there is an association with seizures and uh, Shigella infections too. Um, since we're talking about Giardia, um, there was one thing that I also wanted to, you know, at least go over too, because I think it's just a, uh, it's a quick review of some of the common, um, you know, at least causes of the diet or of uh chronic diarrhea. And so um, if I just do like a quick rundown, David, I'm going to tell you the species and I want you to tell me, or actually how about I give you the common source. Oh man. And uh, you tell me which organism it is. And so at least for our audience too, I think this is something too, just to think about as I say this common source, what's the first organism that comes to mind? Well, word association game. Heck yeah. All right. For board review, you know, they're going to pull some of these buzzwords out and this will help you get to the answer too. That's fair. Um, All right. So raw poultry, unpasteurized milk, what do you think? Campylobacter. Yep. What about antibiotic use, community-acquired, nosocomial spread? Oh, yeah, Clostridium, C. diff. Good. Um, What if I told you contaminated water, petting zoos, and how how would I say contaminated fresh water? Mm, We talked about this one. We did. What's that? Cryptosporidium. Cryptosporidium, good. What about contaminated lakes and streams or fecal-oral transmission? Oh, we just did that one, Giardia. (laughs) Yeah. What about imported raspberries? 
Ah, we talked about this one too. Cyclospora. 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 Remember from a developing country and they throw out some fruit or raspberries? Think Cyclospora. Mm -hmm. And uh, what about chitterlings? What about? What do you think? What would you associate with that if they have a history um, with eating the chitterlings or however you actually, you know, I can never really pronounce it the right way. Which or which organism are you thinking? Sometimes it can actually mimic, you know, appendicitis. Too. Oh, you're talking about chitlins. Chitlins. Okay. <laughs> Come on. Come on. For those of you listening, that would be the random pork products, especially intestines that are cooked. Uh, and that's going to be Yersinia. Uh, um, Introclit. Introclit. Nope. It's, Jack, I'm gonna need your help. Yep, it's intercolitica, and uh, your this is this actually is an important at least concept to know because for some reason it still comes up in boards. Now clearly we're in the wrong regional, you know, at least area to actually see cases of this. Not to say that we haven't, but uh, this is not to be mistake or not to be mistaken with Yersinia pestis, which causes plague. This is a different type of Yersinia species that tends to mimic appendicitis, but it's actually a bacterial cause and or of chronic diarrhea. Just know, too, if you are suspecting Yersinia, you need to call the lab and ask because they have special media just to isolate this. If not, it could be missed. So if you really suspect it, make sure you let your lab know, too. So, well, actually, I think that was kind of a good back and forth, just word association. So we may come back to that a little bit later just for quick review. So I like it. Good job. All right. So, David, that takes us back. I know we got off on a tangent there. I want to get back to treatment with Giardia. Let's, first of all, go with diagnosis, too. How do you diagnose Giardia? I talked about this ovin parasite that you can do. We have an antigen test now, at least within our institution. What's most important, though, is that, and this is what's been done in the past, and even some outside laboratories in more rural areas, you'll actually provide stool samples. Now, I know it's extremely awkward to tell your patients that they have to bring in stool samples to the lab, but hey, that's just how it has to be. And just know, if you give them one stool sample, you may not catch it. So it's important that you do a minimum of three samples or the Giardia or four, you know, where they can do an ovin parasite where they can look under the microscope and see if the organism is there or they can do the antigen testing. And then once you have three negative, you know, at least Giardia, you know, at least stool samples, and you can probably say good confidence that uh, it's probably not Giardia. And uh, so just something to consider too uh, when you start thinking about these, um, about these ways to diagnose. Now, I... <laughs> Just because of my history in micro, I have to bring up this one test that they used to do for chronic giardiasis, and this was called a string test. Have you heard about this, David? The string test that they usually or they used to do. I feel like I did at some point, but uh, <laughs> why don't we go ahead and refresh? Well, it's actually for this chronic giardiasis. Uh, for these infections, they actually have them swallow a capsule on a string, <laughs> and so they leave it for um, several hours and then retrieve it and check for trophozoites for the Giardia itself. It's uh, pretty invasive and yeah. probably not very comfortable, but something that they used to test on widely, um, I should say back in the day, but you know, <laughs> years ago. So rarely, rarely done today. I have not seen I'm glad we have tested. the antigen test now. <laughs> um, but that jumps into treatment. Um, I think most people associate this, let's treat with metronidazole. Really, there's three medications that the Red Book will actually suggest. I usually put metronidazole at the top of the list, then um, tinidazole, and then nidazoxanide. That's that medication that we talked about for cryptosporidium. The advantage of the tinidazole um, that is uh, a single-dose tablet, and that can be available for children greater than three years of age. To be honest, have you ever taken metronidazole before? I have or not. Flagyl? It's disgusting. It just, you know, they always talk about these side effects like hairy tongue and so forth. I've never seen that. What I get is that when people take Flagyl, um, most of the time, um, 
young females, they will take flagell for bacterial vaginosis and they come in and say, oh gosh, it's making me nauseated. I can barely like even, I hate the sight of food and just the thought of taking the pill just makes me sick. And sometimes that does happen. So sometimes you just tell them to battle through it and get done because it's only seven days for most of their treatment courses. But of course for kids, it's a little bit more difficult. So that's why you need to consider something like tinnitusol as well. So yeah, I think that kind of at least um, wraps things up from a Giardia standpoint. So I think really, David, we can finish off this you know last section of protozoa pretty quickly with those that are remaining. So we're still in the flagellates group of the protozoa, that last group. And the other ones that I wanted to mention is um, one being trichomonas. Trichomonas we're clearly going to talk about in the um, STD section. So we aren't going to go into detail with those. Just know that it is part of the group. The other one is trypanosomiasis or trypanosoma. Um, so <laughs> you probably have heard of this. This has, um, you know, that characteristic, you know, it's the African disease is known as sleeping sickness and it is caused by trypanosoma bruzii, and that's, um, transmitted by the, what David, can you remember what that's transmitted by the African sleeping sickness disease for uh, trypanosoma? Some fly, uh, <laughs> that's. The tsetse fly. The tsetse fly. Tsetse. The tsetse fly. It's, <laughs> it's like the uh, pterodactyl. The T is silent. <laughs> <laughs> um, you probably talk to three different ID docs, and they probably say, no, pronounce that T along with it. I usually say tsetse fly. All right. Um, but to be honest, good word association, and sometimes that will come up. I think it's more ID boards related, but it's always fun to say, right, for tsetse fly? Indeed. Um, now, for the American illness, for trypanosoma, that's referred to as, can you tell me, do you remember that, David? Hmm something so trypanosoma american illness it's associated with what if i told you some characteristic eye findings it's called the romagna sign mm, i need one more give me give me one more thing that's associated with uh let's see here um well i was gonna say echolasia yes that's the one chagas disease. yes <laughs> i just see i just needed some more word association there <laughs> Well, I think this is something that, you know, at least you guys can remember. Also know that it can cause megacolon as well. Um, but uh, what I mentioned, though, was very characteristic, the Romagna sign. Um, and this is edema of the eyelids. And this is very characteristic for the acute phase of um, the American illness of trypanosomiasis. Um, so something just to, you know, be familiar with. Um, also, uh, for treatment, not important for you guys to know, we treat with something called nifrotamox, um, proven efficacy. Um, I'll just mention it once because I don't think it's important to know, uh, but just know it's out there. So trypanosoma is fun. It has a characteristic look under the microscope. Even some of the giant microbes you can buy online now actually have the characteristic Chagas disease for all those who are interested. <laughs> if you come over to the ID fellow's office, you can probably find some random you know, organisms floating from the ceiling, including that one. So, But... David, are you, I think I think we're about done with you know protozoa. Let's finish it off, all right? Let's all right, finish let's it off it. with a bang. Um, and clearly, the last one you probably have all heard about. It's called uh, Leishmaniasis. And uh, Leishmaniasis, there's three major clinical syndromes associated with it. It's cutaneous, mucosal, and visceral. Now, I don't know if this is I, this has probably come up in some buzzwords, David. But when you start thinking of visceral Leishmaniasis, what's that famous kind of condition? Um, if you associate, or if somebody says this word, you think of uh, visceral lish, or leishmaniasis. You know what? I'm not even going to pretend to know this. You're going to have to share this one with me. It's something called Kala-Azar disease. So when people say Kala-Azar, that's basically um, synonymous with visceral leishmaniasis. Um, and this has a hepatosplenomegaly, fever, anorexia, and so forth. 
Location is key. This is in the Eastern Hemisphere. So if you have patients coming back with fever of unknown origin, um, always start thinking leishmaniasis too, especially if they're in the right setting. I did remember that this had something to do with the sand fly yes, bite. Though. Yes, and that's the and that's I think an important thing to bring up is that you know we talked about trypanosoma. Trypanosoma was caused by the what, David? The tsetse fly. Right. But leishmaniasis, the cutaneous form, because you've, you've seen leishmaniasis, if you've seen pictures of this, it's pretty. It's it's devastating what it can do mm-hmm. um, at um, at least for cutaneous infections. You know, I have told myself that I want to see leishmaniasis before I finish fellowship. You know what? I I just want to see it before I finish my career <laughs> because it is it is clearly a sight to see, especially if you Google images of leishmaniasis. But the important association you were spot on was saying that it is the sandfly uh, bite. So um, always always think of the sandfly for leishmaniasis. And then the tsetse fly for good old trypanosomiasis. So for treatment, treatment's a little bit more difficult. You would think that uh, you would use some of the other agents that we've been using before. Actually, it's amphotericin B. And I, I believe, you know, this is something that, uh, you know, that I would have to r- run past, you know, some staff members here. But I think amphotericin is the only FDA-approved drug for um, leishmaniasis. Nothing that you need to know. That's more for me for ID boards. But uh, just to know that there's some treatment out there for it. So... Well, David, clearly, you know, I'm glad that you're here because, as I told you before, people know me for my 3 a.m. radio voice. So hopefully I haven't put anybody to sleep, at least with this first section of parasites. So at least you've been keeping people up with your enthusiasm, <laughs> and I appreciate it. So, But yeah, hey, that actually brings to um, or concludes our protozoa section. So again, David, remember when I told you at the very beginning, the protozoa, between the, or comparing the protozoa with the helminths, do the protozoa, do they replicate within the body or do they replicate outside the body? In the body. In the body. Do you generally see eosinophilia with the protozoa or no eosinophilia? No eosinophilia. Good. And what are the three groups of the protozoa that we divided these up into? What What are the three? Sporozoa, amoeba, and flagellates. Yep. So, and now I'm going to really test you. So the sporozoa, which organisms did we talk about are in the sporozoa? We talked about toxoplasma, cryptosporidium, Isospora, Cyclospora, Plasmodium, and Babesia. Good. What about the amoeba? Um, Into amoeba histolytica. Yeah, you can't forget that. Remember, bloody diarrhea, right? Mm-hmm. Liver abscesses. And liver abscesses. Good. Uh, flagellates. That's going to be Giardia. Um, we didn't talk about it, but Trichomonas, Trypanosoma, uh, and Leishmaniasis. Very good. Very good. So, one other thing. So if I told you that um, we had a newborn that had um, diffuse cerebral calcifications, was small for gestational age, and had chorioretinitis, which which organism would come straight or come quickly to mind? Toxoplasma. What if I told you that there was no chorioretinitis and they had cerebral calcifications that were around the ventricles or surrounding the ventricles? You would think which organism? CMV. And what is a common side effect of CMV that you generally see in these congenitally infected patients? For, with CMB. That's going to be the hearing loss. Good. And then what about toxoplasmosis? What do you see? Vision. Vision loss. Absolutely. Good, good. So, no, I think that was a good quick review. Any, anything else? Nope. I think, I, think we that's have, it. I think we have beaten the protozoa to death. And uh, we're going to move on to the helminths, but that's going to be in another section. So you guys tune in and listen to that as well. Make sure you go back because we clearly dropped a lot of knowledge here. All right. Well, thanks, David, for having me. No, thank you. Thank you.